Bible reading is from Mark chapter 10, verse 1 to 31. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as he usually did, he began teaching them once more. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Now in the house, the disciples questioned him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Some people were bringing little children to him so he might touch them, but his disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one. God, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Then, looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was stunned at this demand, and he went away grieving, because he had many possessions. (coughs) Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So they were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. I assure you, Jesus said, There is no one who has left house, brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields, because of me and the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions, and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Well, it's pretty challenging and yet inspiring passage that we're looking at tonight. Uh, Mark chapter 10 
shows the Lord Jesus Christ demanding radical discipleship and yet also promising real treasure and real hope. He demands radical discipleship. He has strong words on the definition of marriage. He's got very strong words on divorce. He challenges us to give up on trusting in our wealth and our ease and our comfort. And yet at the same time, he promises that God can do the impossible. He allows us to enter the kingdom of God, that God will bless us not only in this life, but, uh, but in life eternal in heaven. Radical discipleship with real hope and real treasure. That's what we're looking at in tonight's passage. Uh, so let's pray and uh, ask that God would be with us as we listen to his word. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are the God who speaks. You have revealed yourself perfectly to us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we would listen to him and that we would follow him and we would say no to all the things that distract us and that we keep saying yes to Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, Mark chapter 10 begins with Jesus returning to Jewish territory and the crowds gather to him. And what Jesus does every time massive crowds come to him is he teaches them. Because what people need more than anything else is to know the truth, to know the truth about God, to know the truth about God's kingdom and about eternity. Now, the Pharisees rock up. Now, the Pharisees are these religious experts, experts in the law, the religious leaders. And they come to ask a question of Jesus about divorce. But notice, they don't want to learn. They don't want to know the truth. They don't want to understand. That's not what they're interested in. They've come to ask him a question to test him. Because they've already decided they don't like him. And they try and find a a mistake he makes. They try and get him to slip up. It's like our world, really, that even as the world thinks about Jesus, it's already decided it doesn't like Jesus, and it's just trying to find a reason in order to say no to him. So the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Jesus answers their question with another question, which is a great way of turning the test back on them. He says, what did Moses command you? What does the Bible say? Actually, you guys are the experts in the law. Shouldn't you know the answer to this question? What does the law say? And so they say, well, Moses permitted a man to divorce his wife and send her away. Jesus then explains that, you know what? These so-called experts, these religious leaders, they're meant to know God's word so that they can then teach God's word have yet again misunderstood the heart of the law that God gave Israel. Verse 5, Jesus says, It was because of your hard hearts, not their hard hearts, but because of your hard hearts, Moses wrote this law. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses gives a law about divorce. And when he does, you read Deuteronomy 24 and it does he's not recommending it. He's not saying, look, I'd love it if you all got divorced. Try marrying someone else. Go have some fun. But Moses says, look, if you divorce someone because of their indecency or improper behavior, basically suggesting that they're guilty of adultery or marital unfaithfulness. So it's not just divorce because I'm bored and it's not working. But Moses says, if you separate from someone, they end up with someone else. Then something happens to that relationship that he dies or they get divorced. You cannot remarry that woman. 
And Moses says, because she has been defiled, and that would be a detestable thing to the Lord. Now, Hollywood says, oh, it'd be beautiful, it'd be romantic that they end up back together, and the Bible says it's wrong because she's been defiled by going and marrying another man. And you can't just pick and choose and move around and write a certificate of divorce to go off, have a break, have a bit of adultery for a while, and then come back and be married. It's ridiculous. Moses was trying to limit the sinfulness and restrict the damage. That's what Moses was trying to do with his law. Jesus is saying, that's not the ideal. That's not what God wants. It's not the purpose of his law. You've got hard hearts. You keep misunderstanding. It's a bit like the commandment, you shall not murder. And you think, okay, so I can keep punching someone in the head. But if I stop just before he dies, then I'm fine. Because I haven't committed murder. Is that the law? No, Jesus says. In fact, how does Jesus summarize the whole law? He says, the whole law is summed up as, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. It's not enough that you haven't done the really bad things. You need to have loved God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. So you've misunderstood the law, Jesus says. And look at what Jesus then has to say about marriage. Firstly, Jesus is very, very clear that marriage is between a man and a woman. So verse 6, he says, uh, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. God made us, which means God has designed us and God gets to decide our identity and our purpose. And he's made us different, male and female. He's made us complementary so that we can fit together. We fit together relationally and socially, and we fit together physically so that we can be united. One woman, one man in marriage. And what Jesus is saying is pretty clear that male and female were created for marriage. This is God's intention and God's design for us, and it still stands. So he says, because God made humans as one race, but as two different genders, then a marriage is God joining people together. Marriage is God uniting people. A marriage is not something you do because you feel like it. A marriage is not about romantic feelings, or I think they're the one, or you complete me. A marriage, the absolute foundation of a marriage is God uniting one man and one woman joining them together as one flesh through their promises to each other made before him. And so this is how God has made humanity to to be. Humans are born into families. Humans are created out of a union of a man and a woman. And they're brought up in that union, in that family. And so Jesus says, for this reason, verse 7, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife to, in order to go be joined to his wife and create a new family that children can be born into and raised in. So if God is in the business of uniting man and woman in marriage, then we should not be separating them. Jesus says what God has brought together, man must not separate. Don't rip apart what God has joined together. 
and don't try and join together what God holds separate. And here's the thing. We shouldn't be trying to find all the loopholes. We shouldn't be like the Pharisees and asking, well, okay, yeah, but when are you allowed to divorce? What circumstances is it okay for me to separate from my wife? What if this happened? But what if this happened? Yeah, but what about this? Can I divorce my wife then? The Pharisees are really just looking for a way around God's will for their lives. They're trying to break the spirit of the law while trying to keep the letter of the law and they just don't get it. The answer is very simple according to Jesus. Do not get divorced. In fact, God says in the Old Testament, in Malachi 2.16, God says, I hate divorce. I hate divorce and a man who covers himself in violence. God says, I hate it. If you go into marriage thinking, if it doesn't work, then we can divorce and then we can you know, find another option. Do not get married. If you are married... And you're thinking, well, if it doesn't work, I can always find someone else. You get divorced, get remarried, repent. You need to keep the promises that you made to your wife, to your husband. You need to remain faithful. You need to remain committed. What God has joined together, do not separate. Notice when Jesus and the disciples are then alone, the crowd's not there. They ask him about this. They're like, really? This is hardcore, Jesus. Is that what you really mean? Notice he doesn't give them a more subtly nuanced position with a few conditions and a few clarifications as long as he repeats what he says very strongly. Verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus is saying every time there is divorce and remarriage, there is adultery. So don't do it. Now, you might have more questions about this. I know it's a pretty tricky, complicated, personal, sensitive topic. Uh, you might want to come and talk to me after church or uh, write it down on the, question, uh, on the connection cards or we have question time after this. There's a lot more to be said. But the thing I want to say is for those who are divorced... I don't know all the circumstances, but what I do know is that God treats us not according to what we've done, but he treats us with grace and mercy and compassion. And he offers forgiveness and he offers a place in his kingdom as a free gift. And everyone, we're all sinners who've been brought back to Jesus by his grace. But I will say a society and a people that messes with marriage, that redefines marriage, or that takes marriage lightly and divorces easily is a society that is doing damage to children, to families, to little ones, and it's a society that is destroying itself. That is our society. We are so obsessed with my own personal rights and pleasures, who cares about the consequences for others? It's tragic. And so it is to children and to little ones that we turn to in our next scene. Verse 13, people are bringing little children to Jesus so that he can touch them. But the disciples rebuke them. They don't just say, oh, he's too busy or come back later. They actually rebuke them. How dare you bring children to Jesus as if he's too important for them? They just don't get it, do they? Remember last week we saw in Mark 9 that Jesus has been acknowledged by the disciples as the Christ, the King, 
the Messiah. He's been revealed to them as the Son of God. But he has set about, as the king, as the son of God, he sets about completely flipping upside down people's expectations. Completely reversing the sense of what a king is and the kingdom he's going to establish. Because he teaches them, first of all, that he must suffer. And he must be rejected. And he must die and then rise from the dead. He teaches that to be great, you have to be the servant of all. And he says, the way you treat Little, insignificant nobodies is what really matters to God. He turns everything upside down. So when the disciples stop the kids coming to Jesus, look at verse 14. Jesus is indignant. He's angry. He's displeased with them. And he says to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Verse 15, I assure you, I tell you the truth. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And taking the kids in his arms, he put his hands on them and he blessed them. Jesus is saying, I'm not too important for little ones and helpless little children. In fact, that's why I've come into the world. I welcome them because they welcome me. And in fact, anyone who won't receive the kingdom like a little child, with absolute dependence and helplessness, will never enter it. See how it's kind of upside down? Normally, we kind of think a child has to grow up to become an adult to have access to cool things like driving and voting and staying up past 7.30 or whatever it is. But Jesus is saying, we need to become like little kids, helpless, dependent, completely trusting in Him. The kingdom of God is not about the greatest or the most impressive, or the most accomplished, receiving their rewards and getting their mansion in heaven. It's not something you acquire or earn through your own effort. You receive it as a gift, like a helpless child. And so it's in that context, the very next scene, verse 17, this rich young ruler comes and asks a question of Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has just said, to get eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God, you need to receive it as a gift like a helpless, dependent little child. And then this guy asks, but what do I do? How do I get it? How do I earn it? But look even more carefully at what he says. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you think about it, the very definition of inheritance is that you don't do anything. Inheriting isn't about earning or working or somehow deserving it. You don't do anything to receive it. What did Prince Charles do to be the one who's going to inherit the kingdom of Great Britain and Australia? Uh, What did the Queen do? What did Queen Elizabeth do? They didn't do anything. They got born is what they did. In fact, the one thing that you could possibly do to make it that you get your inheritance, namely bump off your mum and dad, means you're going to be in prison. You're not going to get anything. What do I have to do To inherit, it's a strange question. You don't do anything. It's a matter of receiving it. It's a matter of being part of that family relationship. All you do is trust in God. And so we here we have this guy asking, tell me what to do. Tell me what I have to do. He's starting with the wrong question. Now, Jesus' reply should have stopped him in his tracks. Not only does Jesus answer his question with another question, But he subtly undercuts this ruler's whole position. Jesus asks, why do you call me good? 
because he'd come up and said, good teacher, what do I have to do? Jesus is like, why do you call me good? What's your thinking about good? What's your definition of good? Because no one is good except one, God. No one is good except God alone. See, if you want to talk about your life, your actions somehow being good enough for God, good enough to earn a ticket to heaven, then you have to take into account this one simple fact. No one is good except God. No one is good. Not you, not me, not Mother Teresa or the most kind, compassionate person you can think of. No one is good. We cannot meet God's standards. So this question that Jesus has should have set alarm bells ringing for this rich young ruler. But Jesus goes on. He tells the man, you already know what it would mean, don't you? You already know what you would have to do if you're going to try and earn your way to eternal life. Just like he said to the Pharisees earlier, he says to the rich young ruler, what does God's word say? What is the law? God himself has set before us his standards, his definition of good. And it's there for us to read in the Old Testament. It's represented by the Ten Commandments. You know the commandments, Jesus says, verse 19. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Now have a look at this young man's response in verse 20. It's kind of astonishing. All these I have kept since I was a youth. Now, you could possibly grant that maybe he hasn't committed murder. Perhaps he hasn't committed adultery. But stealing, there are so many different ways to steal. And isn't he giving false testimony now when he said, I've always done the right thing my entire life? And I'd like to ask his mother and father about this whole, I honoured them ever since I was a young boy kind of thing. See, sure, this guy may have done better than others the bible teaches very clearly all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god no one is righteous if you've broken one of the commandments jesus says you've broken all of them because you've broken the god who gave them but notice jesus doesn't say any of that he doesn't explain in simpler more concrete terms no one is good except god this man had asked him for something to do Jesus gives him something to do. To this man who wants to rely on his own ability, who wants to rely on his own strength, verse 21 says, when Jesus heard this, he looked at him and he loved him. Jesus filled with compassion for this guy, mercy, and he he feels a, a real love for this guy. And he says to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says to this powerful, wealthy young man, you still lack one thing. I'm guessing the young man knew he was lacking something. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been on his knees begging Jesus, asking Jesus, how can I get eternal life? Because despite the fact that he's very wealthy, and, and, and he's a ruler, and he's a young man. And, and we know that because Matthew and Luke and Mark, the, these three Gospels record this event, and they give us different details about his life. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. In a worldly sense, he has it all. But he's not satisfied. And Jesus says it's because you lack one thing. There's just one thing you don't have. And all you need to do to get that one thing 
is sell everything else that you do have. Jesus says to get the one thing that you're missing, the one thing that will satisfy you, the one thing that will fill you, you have to get rid of all the things that you have. That one thing is going to cost you everything. But that one thing is treasure in heaven. That one thing is eternal life. It's belonging in God's kingdom. It is being loved by God. How desperate are you? How much do you want heaven? Would you give up everything for the kingdom of God? You see, the choice put before this man is really, you can follow Jesus or you can follow your own desires. You can follow money. You put your trust and your identity on your purpose in possessions. If you follow Jesus, you have to give up everything you cling to here, but you gain eternal life. If you follow money and desires, you have to give up God and you gain a few short years of doing whatever you want on this planet. So where is your treasure? Where is your home? Where do you belong? What is it that your heart yearns for? Where is the thing that is of most value to you? The thing that you would give up anything for? What is it that you worship? Is it Jesus or is it money, possessions, pleasure, success? See, some of you might be thinking right now, man, this is full on. And maybe you're thinking kind of guiltily at the back of your mind, does this mean Jesus wants me to sell everything I own? How could I do that? How could I live without a car or without a computer or a PlayStation or a mobile phone or my clothes? How could I live without all this stuff? I'd have to trust God to look after me then, wouldn't I? Well, let me assure you, this passage isn't saying that all Christians need to sell everything. It's not saying you get to heaven by owning nothing. That's not what Jesus means when he says you need to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. Jesus is telling this rich young ruler he needs to let go of his attachment to the world and he needs to come and belong to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. His attachment to his wealth and his possessions, he needs to get rid of them for the sake of following the one who can give him real life and eternal life. Whatever obstacles are standing in the way of you trusting Jesus, give it up. It isn't a call to live like a monk, a vow of poverty, you're not allowed to eat, not allowed to breathe, you're not allowed to have anything or whatever it is. No, Jesus is saying this is a question of the heart. What do you trust? What do you treasure? What do you worship? However, if you're now sitting there thinking, phew, I'm glad. I'm glad I don't have to sell my stuff. I'm glad he said that. Because I didn't want to have to get rid of my things. I didn't want Jesus to ask me to sell all my stuff because I like having them and I couldn't live without them. If you're thinking that right now, then maybe you should sell them. Maybe you need to get rid of them. Maybe you need to let go of those things which hinder your trust in Jesus and your longing for real life in heaven. Maybe you need to decide that the kingdom of God is worth it and following Jesus is worth it. Don't cling to your possessions. Don't hold on to your money as if you could somehow take it with you. Give it away. Give it to the church. Give it to your friends in need. Give it to your enemies in need. Use it to glorify God. This powerful, wealthy young man couldn't do it. Verse 22, he was stunned at this demand and he went away grieving. 
He couldn't give it up. He's stunned. He wasn't expecting Jesus to ask him to have total commitment to Jesus as Lord. He was expecting Jesus to say, here are the three extra things you need to do. Or if you pray this many times or do this or do that. And Jesus says, no, all I need is total commitment to me. And he couldn't do it. And Jesus says, verse 24 Uh, Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are astonished at his words. They think, what? How does that work? Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the average camel is over seven foot tall, 10 foot long, and weighs 500 kilograms. The average needle is a lot smaller than that. And camels just can't go through the eye of a needle. In fact, I think it struggled to get a camel's hair through the eye of a needle. And let me assure you, Jesus isn't talking about some narrow passageway or a little lane in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle that camels could just barely scrape through if they lost all their luggage and went on their knees. And that that, that didn't exist. What Jesus is saying is, It's impossible. Camels cannot go through needle eyes. It cannot be done. Rich people cannot go to heaven. It is easier to do that impossible thing than get a rich person into heaven. And that should scare us. Because whether or not you feel like it, we are rich compared to the rest of the world, compared to throughout history, we are enormously affluent. We live in a country of enormous privileges and benefits. We are rich. Jesus is saying, it's impossible for us to go to heaven. And before you start thinking, well, no, you don't understand, I really am poor. I've got 12 cents to my name. I have $45,000 in debt. And have a look at verse 26. The disciples considered the rich as having the best chance of anyone of getting into heaven. And so they ask, if it's impossible for them, then who can be saved? Now, this is the point where it all comes together. This is the main point of this passage and of this talk. This is the thing you need to remember on your way home. And as you think about stuff this week, we humans are completely incapable of entering heaven. We can't save our lives. We can't gain eternal life. We can't please God. But Jesus utters these amazing, comforting words words in verse 27 looking at them jesus said with men it is impossible but not with god because all things are possible with god what people cannot do what we are powerless to do god has done in sending jesus to die on the cross and rise from the dead which means that christians you and i are big, fat, hairy camels that God has managed to somehow squish through the tiny speck that is the eye of a needle because you and I are sinful, selfish, unloving, undeserving people whom God has forgiven and washed clean and given a place where we belong in his kingdom and we can call him our father forever. He has saved us the unsavable. And what did we do to deserve it? Nothing. 
What have we done to become heirs of eternal life, heirs of God's heavenly kingdom? We simply received it. We simply believe the gospel and trust in Jesus. So how desperate, how helpless and utterly reliant on Jesus are you to attain treasure in heaven? Because Jesus demands radical discipleship, wholehearted commitment, passionate for Christ. But you see, what Jesus is demanding is that we truly live. He's demanding that we no longer be slaves to our greed and our idol worship of money. He's demanding that we be free. Because look at the promise of real hope and real life, real treasure that he gives at the end there. Peter says to Jesus, look, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, I assure you, there is no one who has left house, brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields because of me and the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. That's the promise of Jesus. And in many ways, what he's describing firstly is church. We are a family. The Bible describes us as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are united. God has given us each other. We have an enormous family all around the world because we belong to Jesus. And as, as generations hand down the gospel from one generation to another, the Bible also describes that it's like, it's like mothers and fathers handing on the gospel to their young ones. And as people share their homes and share their possessions, this is all part of God blessing us. We've left so much behind and yet what we've gained in being part of God's people. But at the same time, we're not home yet. We will face persecutions. We shouldn't be surprised that our world, our society, our media is irrationally hating God and his followers. Jesus told the disciples this is exactly what's going to happen. We shouldn't be surprised. We will have persecutions because we're not home yet. Our greatest hope is eternal life. We have a place in life that is perfect, filled with real hope and real joy and real peace, real love, soul-satisfying love from God that lasts forever. That is what we have in Jesus. And Jesus is saying all the shiny, sparkly things of the world that are so distracting and seem so cool and so fun, he says they're fading away. They will not last. Don't worry about them. What you should be worried about is eternity. You need to put your trust in me. And before I pray, are there any questions that people have from this passage? Uh, excellent question. So the question is, uh, God values marriage and has created us for marriage. But then uh, Paul seems to say singleness is a better option. Um, it's because we need to understand that the marriage that God has created us for, male and female, is really just pointing us to the ultimate marriage. The real marriage is between Jesus Christ and his church. The real unity, the real love, the real oneness that we are made for and saved for is that we have Jesus who loves us and lays down his life for us. We have Jesus who we want to serve and submit to and love and, and respect. And so if you're a Christian, you have the ultimate marriage that will last forever. 
And so that's why Paul is saying, actually, singleness is a great option because you can get to be devoted to the Lord Jesus. And in fact, in creation, marriage, male and female, is for the sake of bearing children. But now, uh, what God is on about the business of is making disciples. The way that we do that is by sharing the gospel through evangelism. So we're invited to be part of this perfect marriage, the ultimate marriage, and we're invited to be part of the real kind of uh, bringing people to life and new birth, and that is through evangelism. And so that's why those who are married should not idolize their marriage and think, actually, there is something bigger. And those who are single uh, need to trust in God that there is the real marriage, the eternal marriage, the one that everyone, all Christians will have, they already have now in Jesus. So yeah, good question. Any other questions? So the question is, um, isn't his question valid because, isn't the rich young ruler's question valid because we are, we do have to do something and that is to be Christian or put our trust in Jesus or whatever that thing is. Except it's interesting that in John's gospel, John 3, um, Jesus says to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, uh, how do you do that? How do you kind of enter your mother's womb again and come out? And like, what do you even mean? And what, it, what contribution did I have to my first birth? Nothing. What contribution do I have to my second birth? Ultimately, nothing. So Jesus is saying not, okay, I've given you a bunch of things you need to do. You need to acknowledge you can't do anything. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting. I can't do anything. Jesus has done it for me. And so inheritance comes to those whom God adopts. And he doesn't adopt us because we've performed better than anyone else, because we're godlier or more righteous. He adopts us because he chooses to freely love us. And so that's the nature of inheritance is a gift given by God, received the way a child receives life and, and, and food and, and care. They don't do anything. They're not paying their parents. They're just going to lie in there like chubby blobs and, um, and the parents going to do it for them. So I think that's the same that's what I'm trying to suggest in terms of that nature of inheritance. Um, how about I pray? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have showered your love on us in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that we don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your forgiveness. We don't deserve a place in your kingdom forever. But you give it to us anyway. And Father, thank you for Jesus' sacrifice. Please help us to value him and his word and his service above everything else in our lives. Give us the strength, Father, to keep saying no to the world and yes to your glorious eternal kingdom. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.